Choose Your Princess Wisely, a Good Omen's Multivoice Podfic, written by the Wolf. Chapter 8. Gather a Pose of Circe's Remorse. The first day out on their trek southeast, Crowley convinces Aziraphale to let him down the moment there in the cover of trees, so he can assume his full size and keep pace alongside him. Really, my dear boy, I don't mind carrying you, he protests, even as he crouches down and holds out his arm for Crowley to decamp. Nah, don't worry about it. If I don't get down and move, I'm going to go spare within the hour. It feels good to stretch out in his full size, and they pass the day companionably bickering about court politics. Aziraphale's family has been in bed with the day court, often very literally, for at least ten generations, to the point where they can lay claim to a small bit of territory. It's in an utterly undesirable location on the border with the night court. Mother liked to visit. There's a proper enchanted cottage in the woods we keep under wards. But in the end, she decided to visit the new continent for her retirement instead of settling there. Loyal to your blood's side, I take it. Crowley had needled gently. He was maybe inventing a bit of improbable involvement between his borrowed kingdom and the night court to explain his knowledge. Aziraphale makes a face. Maybe when I was young. My eldest brothers are a bit fanatical. But I've encountered too many fae from both sides over the years to hold much credence in there being any true difference beyond a slavish commitment to opposing ascetics. Crowley crows in delight. That's what I say. From the same bloody stock, aren't they? All liars by omission, obsessed with contracts, like playing silly buggers with mortals. Hmm, quite. A funny look crosses the hero's face then, but Crowley is too busy having a quiet conniption realizing he's basically described himself to question it. But when they've finished dinner at the small camp they've set up that evening, he immediately knows when Aziraphale begins fidgeting the last piece of dried apricot from afters in their fingers, that they are going to be revisiting the earlier topic. Antony, Aziraphale starts, pursing his lips at a small fire they've built in a small clearing. Crowley has assumed the same half-circle sprawl he'd taken the first time they'd camped together bracketing the hero between himself and the fire. He turns his head sluggishly from where he'd been idly staring at a Aziraphale while pretending to stare at the green gloom of the forest beyond the fire. Aziraphale. He parrots back and more comfortably adjusts his chin on a switchback curve of his belly. This, at least, earns him a slightly bitchy look before the hero falls back into a vaguely fretful expression. Crowley waits patiently, counting on the unblinking stare of a giant snake to do its unnerving work. Aziraphale makes it through the final bit of his make-do dessert and even packs away the rest of his travel tea things before he comes back around to it. Well, you know that my family has quite a lot of fey blood in our, um, pedigree, he says finally. Sure, 
Crowley agrees easily. It's where the magic comes from. Yes, and? Aziraphale winces. Well, I'm afraid it's also where the functional immortality comes from. Crowley desperately wishes he had eyelids to blink with. To be honest, he had sort of been taking the hero's practical immortality as a given, since he's known a handful of humans in a Xerophil situation over the course of his long life. But it's just now occurring to him that this isn't something that likely would have occurred to Prince Anthony, and he's caught between the awkwardness of needing to act surprised and the genuine surprise that Aziraphale would reveal something so private. Uh... He stalls. It's something to consider when you marry one of us. Aziraphale continues, plucking at the straps of his bracer. If you have any advisors or secession laws, you'll need to be sure to write necessary provisions for your partner to step down, or retire in favor of your designated heir by a certain age. Mother and Michael worked it out between themselves. That's why she moved to the new continent, you see. But I know these things are more formal in royal lines. Crowley can't help but wonder what worked it out amongst themselves really means, but realizes it's probably something to poke at another time. So, does functional immortality come standard with fey ancestry? He settles on finally, keeping his tone neutral. Aziraphale winces. No, it requires many, many generations, and certain arrangements and uh, rituals, I believe. I'm told it only really showed up with consistency in my grandmother's generation. I see. I'll take that under advisement. Crowley considers and adds. I had kind of wondered why so many of you were available for marriage when you're one of the youngest and already so... He nearly chokes on his own tongue, swallowing back the end of the sentence, remembering at the last second that humans are touchy as anything about their mortality. As they feel honest to goodness, smirks at him. Well seasoned? He suggests, dry as dust. You said it, not me, Crowley says defensively, a little flustered at how much the little glimpses of bastardry make him want to wrap his entire self around the hero and gently squeeze. Just a little, just so he'll feel how unequivocally held he is. Look, I think the more important question is why, if securing a family fortune is so important, none of the rest of them have married well. Most of them are all right looking. Aziraphale snorts. High praise indeed. Crowley sticks his tongue out at him in a way he's seen humans do, prolonged and straight as an arrow, which makes Aziraphale blink and then in shock. But seriously, Angel, he says, idly winding his body up a bit tighter, so the semicircle he's making around Aziraphale shrinks closer and gains height. Why are you the only one expected to be out here fortune hunting when the rest of them could be putting themselves on the marriage market? 
Aziraphale eyes the much smaller gap between them. Crowley waits with what he thinks is extreme patience. Sandalfon was married once. Aziraphale says, voice coming out almost speculative as he glances over his shoulder and sees that barely two inches separate him from a serpent-shaped backrest. An heiress. They were married thirty years before she died. Sandalfon was married. Crowley asks incredulously, and then immediately... Wait, how old does that make him? How old does that make you? Is Michael's husband immortal too, or is he spouse number two, three? He shifts in agitation, which has the unintended benefit of closing the sand gap between him and Aziraphale's back. Because he can't help himself, he adds, cutting the hero off when he opens his mouth. No, really, Sandalfon? Not, I don't know, literally any of the rest of the lot? Aziraphale looks simultaneously conflicted and highly entertained. Love is ineffable, he says, and then gets a strange sort of squint around his eyes. I'm afraid I'm likely quite a bit older than you, my dear. He says almost apologetically, though he does relax by inches into the support of Crowley's stacked coils. Not bloody likely, Crowley thinks privately. Surely, if they were that close of contemporaries, they would have run into each other before now. As it is, it's boggling him that they haven't crossed paths. Sure, he doesn't tend to participate in the quests he dupes heroes into this directly or consistently, but he's been out and about sometimes in the past couple of centuries. Daniel is also from a family with some immortality, though it's not fixed in the bloodline yet. He's singular amongst his siblings. It's one of the reasons he decided to come live with the family, instead of insisting on his own home with Michael. Aziraphale leans back against Crowley more decisively, even going so far as to wiggle his shoulders in to get comfortable. Taking this as unqualified acceptance, Crowley shifts so he can lay the end of his tail over Aziraphale's lap, and then rests his chin on top of that. I guess it must be difficult finding a spouse when you know you're going to outlive most everyone you meet. He concedes, tucking all the bits of himself more snugly around the hero's semi-reclining form. Yes, Aziraphale says softly, his hand coming down to rest tentatively on Crowley's neck, just behind his head. It can be quite painful. Crowley winces as he belatedly realizes he's been perhaps a bit too blithe about the subject for someone supposedly human, who is not so subtly cutting someone who just went out of their way to warn him they'll certainly outlive him. Well, he says after a moment, didn't some guy say something about it being better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all or whatever? Aziraphale hums wake agreement. When Crowley tips his head slightly to see his face, Aziraphale staring into the fire, a pensive look on his face. 
It makes Crawley's insides squirm uncomfortably. You're like a giant hot water bottle with your magic up, he mutters, hoping to lighten the mood a bit. He gets a weak chuckle in response and a brief squeeze to the back of his neck. It's not a great response, but it also wasn't his best attempt. Still, he's in a bit of a quandary. The functional immortality thing is literally a non-issue. However, he also doesn't think he can concoct a reasonable justification for being a heretofore unknown immortal human prince. As it stands, his backstory only survives due to Aziraphale's alarming levels of gullibility. Perhaps this is something he can offer as an olive branch, when he finally has his human corporation secure and can break the news about the whole prince thing. Even if Aziraphale is too pissed to still consider marrying him, surely he wouldn't turn down a bit of immortal friendship. Go to sleep, Angel, he says when the melancholy silence stretches on for too long. I'll keep watch. He can feel Aziraphale stare boring in the back of his skull, but he refuses to tilt his head to meet it. All right, Aziraphale finally says and tips his head so his cheek and temper rest against Crowley's side. Crowley focuses on the warm breath puffing against his scales with every one of Aziraphale's lengthening exhales because it's easier than focusing on anything else in his traitorous brain for the moment. Finding yourself loosely entangled in the coils of the giant snake isn't the strangest way Aziraphale has woken up in recent memory but for the more adventurous sort, he thinks, he could highly recommend the experience. During the night, the prince must have rearranged the great, long loops of himself, so that Aziraphale is now resting entirely on him, back and neck propped up just a bit. The snake's chin is settled on Aziraphale's chest, head angled so he can gaze out towards the rest of the clearing. Aziraphale regards the prince silently as his mind leisurely wakes up. He's not unmoved by the prince's subtly brash style of courtship. No poetry or adoring words, but he finds the sweetly escalating physical affection and indignantly insistent care of his well-being charming. Oh, it's been delightful if he's perfectly honest with himself. If he could only trust that it would persist beyond the breaking of the curse, he might do more than passively accept these escalations. It feels false, though, to actively encourage the attachment, to drop the pretense that the prince might be considering anyone but Aziraphale as his bridegroom. Aziraphale knows his own shortcomings. He is a passionless creature in a passionate world. Once the prince has his human body and human urges back, the sweet escalations will become hotter, sweatier, and Aziraphale knows from painful experience it isn't something he can pretend. If he were less selfish, he would come right out and reveal all, nip the romance Anthony is trying to cultivate in the bud. 
But this here, waking up feeling held and cherished, makes the hollow of his chest ache so wonderfully. Succumbing to the bittersweet slant of his thoughts, he raises a hand and draws his fingertips lightly over the top of Anthony's head, smoothing over the silky scales between his eyes and down back over his neck. Something like a shiver ripples through the length of the serpent's muscles, and Aziraphale feels a smile tuck at his lips as the movement jostles him all over. The prince makes a noise devoid of vowels and swivels his head around to fix Aziraphale with white, golden-yellow eyes. You're awake, he says, in the tone of voice of someone uncomfortably aware they are stating something very obvious. Well spotted, Aziraphale murmurs, because the prince never seems put off when he teases him. Quite the opposite, in fact, which is painfully lovely. Shut up, Anthony grumbles back, sounding too mellow to be believable. He resettles his chin on Aziraphale's sternum. How far do we have to walk today? All day, I'm afraid, Aziraphale says, making no move to get up. They have, in fact, at least three more days of travel to clear the forest, assuming no setbacks, then another half-day through farmlands to reach the outskirts of the city of Eastgate, where the gardens they need to visit lie. The prince groans twisting his head dramatically so the soft red scales of his chin are exposed to the sky. Aziraphale grins. Do you want me to carry you today? He asks. The temptation to feel how soft the vulnerable underbelly scales might be is almost irresistible, but he thinks it would be rude to pet someone's throat without asking. He's already dared more than he should with the earlier touch. Anthony doesn't say yes, but he does pointedly start rearranging himself in a way that allows Aziraphale to carefully find the ground with his feet and hands so he can lever himself up without putting too much weight on any one bit of snake. By the time Aziraphale's come back from freshening himself up in a nearby copse of bushes, the prince has assumed his smaller size and is lounging on one of the large boulders that form a half-circle around the semi-permanent fire pit in the middle of the clearing. Aziraphale silently offers his downturned palm. This time, though, when Anthony is lazily winding himself up into his scarf impression, he arches up to rub the top of his head and a significant length of his neck against the underside of Aziraphale's chin before he settles. Aziraphale's breath catches in his lungs. Oh. He lets slip, breathless, hands fluttering up, but holding back from touching the serpent draped over his shoulders. Anthony drops his chin on the juncture of Aziraphale's neck and shoulder, only a few inches closer than usual, but shocking all the same. All right? He asks, subdued. Aziraphale swallows and reminds himself firmly who 
there to meet in Eastgate to gain access to the Eden Gardens. It helps Forstar the urge to reach up and press gentle fingers to the scales resting against his collarbones. Of course, he replies, unable to do anything about the embarrassingly gooey quality to his stone. The three days blur together, stretching and collapsing like Taffy being pulled. They mostly stay away from deep topics, keeping to lighter stories and friendly debates about inconsequential things. Every night, Anthony arranges himself like a backrest before whatever fire they've managed, whether in an established waypoint along the trail or in a smaller clearing, if they've not managed to make good enough time during the day. Every morning, Aziraphale wakes up cradled and kept. He doesn't offer any spontaneous touches, but he does lean in to the occasional, intentional caress Anthony grants his arm or his neck when getting settled. It feels like there are champagne bubbles in his chest, even as anxiety grips him by the diaphragm when he thinks about the destination. He tries, once or twice, to bring up the topic of his unsuitability again but loses his nerve before he can get even the first word out. Finally, on the last day of the journey, as they approach the main gates of the towering city walls from the main road leading north, Anthony calls out. Look, he says, back in the hood of Aziraphale's cloak and only one casual loop perched on his left shoulder. Before we get to the city and meet whoever this contact of yours is, Will you level me with what's got your pants in a twist? Aziraphale grimaces. Well, I said contact, but... The prince's silence is extremely judgmental. Who is it? He asks finally. The princess. Oh, of course it is. Who is? Aziraphale trails off. Anthony hisses in frustration. Well, do you remember when I said that I don't tend to get on romantically with people? He hatches. Yes. Oh, oh. Anthony lurches forward so he can swivel around and make eye contact. Are we about to meet one of your exes? He sounds, as thinks, far too excited about the prospect. Yes, he says repressively which seems to remind the prince of his manners, because he ducks back down lower on Aziraphale's shoulder. Right, sounds awkward, he says brightly. Actually, I'm not sure why I didn't expect something like this. Do you think there's any of these tasks we'll be able to complete and not meet someone you know? It's networking, Aziraphale says, trying to snap but just sounding sulky. Sure, Angel. Anthony says breezily. Oh, how do you want me to play this? All cool and regal? Maybe possessively jealous? Or should I pop up all big and fangy and... He hisses in what Aziraphale assumes is supposed to be a demonstration. He sighs. No, thank you. 
but you might want to stay close. Yeah? Katerina can be enthusiastic. At Aziraphale's recommendation, Crowley hunkers down all the way in the hood of the cloak once they enter the city. I've never visited here before. Aziraphale had fretted lightly as they approached the gates. I don't know what sort of reaction we might receive. Let's get a lay of the land, hmm? And then we can reassess. Crowley had hissed an approximation of a tisking reproval. Ashamed of your own fiance, say? And Seraphale had wordlessly reached up over his shoulder and pushed Crowley back down into the hood by the snout. Now Crowley watches the blue of the sky, the increasingly regular silhouettes of two and three story buildings, done in some sort of ochre-colored stucco or render finish, as they move steadily further into the city. The gentle sway, the relative lack of stimulus, and the seeping warmth of Aziraphale's back through the cloak material combine to lull him into a half-stupor. He doesn't rouse again until he realizes that the hubbub of the city has abruptly fallen away. Groggily, he peers over the lip of the wood and watches the towering walls of a palace recede as they follow a crushed shell path leading into a flourishing tropical garden. A cautious swivel around reveals Aziraphale is following a pair of guards bristling with weapons deeper into the garden. He ducks back down into the hood when one of them starts to turn his head back. Pardon my asking, sir, but I recognize you from Her Highness's aunt's estate, the guard says in a jovial tone that in Crowley's experience means the person is about to ask something a little dark and a lot awkward. Oh? Aziraphale says with distant politeness. Is it true you're under a curse yourself? He asks, curious and eager. Uh, I beg your pardon? Aziraphale splutters. Oh, John, you numpty. The other guard sighs, aggrieved. Oh, like you aren't dying to know too. The first one shoots back. I'm not going to ask about it, though, am I? The second one returns, affronted. You ain't got any class is your problem. Gentlemen, I can assure you. Aziraphale starts, tetchy as anything, when he's cut off by a delighted shriek of Aziraphale! from across the garden. Oh dear, he says, voice thready. Crowley hears the sound of pounding footsteps coming closer and ducks into the smallest coil he can manage, tucking his head in the middle defensively. Barely a second later, Aziraphale rocks back slightly as another body crashes into his. It's so good to see you, you daft bastard! A woman's voice booms from just above and Crowley unclenches just enough to pick up and see a pair of pale arms wound around Aziraphale's neck and a mess of ginger hair spilling over his shoulders. Katerina, Aziraphale replies, sounding a little strangled but fond. I'm quite pleased to see you as well. John, Sam, beat it, she instructs the two guards as her arms disappear and Crowley assumes she steps back. Your Highness, 
Sam pleads, sounding exhausted. I hardly think Haven's angel is going to do me dirty in my own gardens, she says. Especially since he's already turned down the opportunity at least once. <laughs> and after a pause. Oh, unless you've changed your mind, love. She asks with so much overdone lasciviousness in her tone that Crowley thinks he might have spontaneously figured out how to plush. Really, my dear. Aziraphale says reprovingly, and the tone and delivery is so familiar that Crowley feels his spine twitch with the urge to possessively wrap up a limb or two. Go on, she says, theoretically to the guards, and a moment later Crowley hears a pair of mismatched sighs and the sound of receding footsteps. Katerina, Aziraphale says again, warmly, Thank you for agreeing to see me. Of course, she exclaims. Anything for my favorite hero. And that's genuine affection in her voice. Crowley can hear it. Not thinking too hard about it, he slinks up out of the hood and sets about spooling most of his length on Aziraphale's left shoulder, leaving just the last couple feet of his tail to casually drape over Aziraphale's right like he might do with an arm if he had one. The woman, now that he gets a look at her, isn't quite what he expected. She is of a height with a Xerophil, with big bones, big red hair and a big mouth, which is currently slacked open as she regards him in return. Oh, who's this beauty then? She breathes, and Crowley can't help the reflexive preen tilting his head up a bit so the sun will catch the fleshy red of his underbelly. Maybe big was a bit harsh, he thinks. Generous is a better descriptor of her everything. This, Aziraphale says, is Prince Anthony of Hellion, and the reason for the visit. I'm afraid he's gotten himself a bit cursed. Her eyes widen, looking from Crowley to Aziraphale and back. Then narrow shrewdly. Animal husband curse, is it? She asks consideringly. Aziraphale tenses. Er, uh, yes. Have you tried the classics yet? She flips the ends of her hair back over her shoulders and squares her stance. Well? Of course not, you lovely bit of fluff. She says affectionately. Bet it didn't even occur to you. She fixes her gaze on Crowley, a determined glint in her eye. No worries. Catherine is here now. We'll have you fixed up in a trice. She declares. Crowley, of course, has enough God's given sense to be apprehensive about the direction the conversation has weird into, but he still yelps in surprise when she all but lunges toward him, hips puckered. He rears back at the same time Aziraphale takes a stumbling step back, and it's enough of a jostle that he has to quickly redistribute himself around the hero's shoulders, gripping for dear life. Katerina! Aziraphale squeaks. My dear, it's not that sort of curse. To her credit, she immediately stops when she clocks their reactions, though she does cock her hand on her hip and squints speculatively. Are you sure? Sometimes the old puckaroo was a loophole for these things. No loopholes, 
Crowley assures her hastily, relocating his face to the top of the Xerophil's head, out of kissing range. Got a neat little list of tasks to complete. Oh, he talks! She exclaims mildly. That's handy, I guess. Crowley almost hisses before reminding himself they need her goodwill to access her gardens. He settles for reshuffling his length more demonstratively around Aziraphale's shoulders, giving each upper arm its own loop. Katharina watches the display with a small smirk. <laughs> I see how it is, she says. Just be sure you have a good talk before you make any firm plans. Beneath them, Aziraphale tenses again, and Crowley reflexively squeezes around his arms and shoulders. Katerina, Aziraphale laments. What? She replies, spreading her hands wide. It's not a criticism. I appreciated you being straight with me. Wish my ex-husband had been half so open. Could have saved us both a lot of heartache. Crowley, intrigued, asks. Were you not compatible? She cocks an eyebrow. Me and Peter, or me and Aziraphale? Either. Both? He tips his head to try and gorge Aziraphale's reaction, but can't see more than downturned eyes and a clenched jaw from his anger. Don't tell me anything he should do, he corrects. I can wait. She hums consideringly. Aziraphale and I had different needs, and I'm grateful he let me know instead of just letting me jump into another unhappy marriage. I'll let him fill you in on the particulars. She grins wickedly. My first husband cheated on me, and when I called him out in front of the court, he sold me out to a dragon. My aunt hired Aziraphale to rescue me. You slayed a dragon! Crowley shrills, slipping off Aziraphale's head so he can lean around to get a better look at his face. Aziraphale looks torn between misery and amusement. I didn't slay him. A sneaky sort of smile tucks at his lips. I trussed up the consort in his finest robes and a great deal of rope, presented him to the dragon, and brokered a trade. Crowley cackles his approval. <laughs> Katharina snickers. <laughs> the absolute brass balls you have on you, Aziraphale, she says admiringly, and then... Anyway, I owe you about three lifetimes worth of favours for the entertainment value alone. What did you need for my gardens for your quest exactly? Name it and it's yours. Aziraphale straightens and relaxes back his shoulders, obviously feeling back on steadier ground. We need a pose of Circe's remorse. Oh yeah, that would probably work a treat on an animal transformation. She says, bright-eyed and turns to lead them down a side path of the garden towards what looks like an orchard. Maybe I should market it. I'd probably make a mint. My dear, I shouldn't like you to get a reputation for poisoning your guests. Aziraphale returns amiably. We have the chalice of redemption and a few other prohibitively troublesome ingredients rounding us out that should soften the side effects. Suppose you're right. Besides, they're a terror to grow. Can't say I'd be eager to try to get another patch established. This is because Circe's Remorse is a name bestowed more out of wishful thinking than a clear-eyed assessment of character. Circe's extremely put-upon concession that 
Maybe, sometimes, she might be inconvenienced by this one person in particular remaining cursed to an animal form. And, like most grudging admissions, it's a bitch to draw out. She leads them to a large peach tree, the base of which is surrounded by a blanket of dark-leaved, thorny brambles topped by delicate, tear-shaped purple blossoms. As Aziraphale crouches down and retrieves a cloth bag and thick leather cloths in preparation to harvest some of the blossoms, Katharina catches Crowley's eye. You are intending to marry him, aren't you? She asks boldly. Crowley and Aziraphale freeze simultaneously. It feels like there's a mouse lodged in his throat. If he'll have me. Crowley admits, in a croaking sort of voice, too honest by half, but feeling pinned by the woman's blazing, green-eyed stare. Aziraphale swallows audibly and resumes his task, ignoring the conversation so hard he's almost vibrating with it. Good. He's one of the best people I've ever met. If he'd have let me, I'd have put a ring and a crown on him in a heartbeat. She flicks a wistful sort of look down at Aziraphale's halo of white curls. Here's hoping you two are a better fit for each other. He deserves to be happy. Crowley feels all of his insides clench as a wave of pure, breath-stealing anxiety and guilt ripples through him. Maybe it's due to the unrelenting parade of people proclaiming Aziraphale's simmering unhappiness and its unfairness, when meanwhile Crowley knows he's holding a metaphorical sword over both their heads. Or maybe it's because this woman, who clearly believes it was the right thing to let Aziraphale go, obviously mourns there could have been. In any event, He's feeling like a world-class asshole and is, for the first time, seriously considering whether he's making the right call in not admitting all to Aziraphale and throwing himself upon the hero's mercy. Unable to form words around the knot of anxious misery lodged somewhere in his gullet, he settles for nodding. They don't linger once Aziraphale is finished for which Crowley is devoutly grateful. At the garden gates, Katharina gives Aziraphale a bone-crushing hug goodbye and poops Crowley on the snout before he realizes what's happening. He splutters indignantly while she cackles and turns away, calling a cheerful Take care of him, or I'll hunt you down and sell you to a dragon over her shoulder as she sashays back down the path. Hmm, I don't think she's joking, Aziraphale observes, sounding not a little amused and flattered by the threat on his behalf. Crowley's too shaken by his cresting existential crisis to reply beyond a weak hissing protest, and uses the excuse of walking back through the city to sulk in the depths of the cloakhood. He's still pensive and quiet that evening when they arrive back in London by way of the booths. He lets Aziraphale chalk it up to nausea and doesn't protest when Aziraphale suggests he takes a nap in his bowl before supper. When Aziraphale checks on him later to call him down to eat, he feigns sleep, but the hero must realize 
something else is up because he returns straight to their room once the meal is over antony dear he murmurs sitting on the edge of the bed and angling toward the bowl which is currently perched atop the bedside table crowley considers continuing to pretend to sleep but aziraphale is looking quietly miserable which is an expression he's quickly finding himself helpless not to respond to yeah he returns just as quiet he shifts his head just enough that aziraphale will know he's looking at him i feel i've not been quite as honest with you as i should be considering our situation he admits haltingly well that's ironic and shatteringly hysterical Crowley chokes down an inappropriate giggle and waits for Aziraphale to continue. Saying that I don't get on well romantically with people is perhaps underselling things to a misleading degree. Aziraphale says, words jaw-achingly deliberate. The truth is, well, I'm not attracted to people in a carnal way. I don't feel much in the way of carnal urges at all, actually. He pauses with a wince. So, you see, it's not really fair of me to let you think that I'm a serious candidate for a spouse. And I'm so sorry to have let you operate under such gross misapprehensions. Crowley feels like he's hovering outside his body, maybe on the ceiling. His blood is rushing helter-skelter in his demonic veins. Are you serious? He gets out finally. That's your big secret you're not into shagging and he realizes he sounds far too accusatory for the admission given how little it changes his regard but he can't help the sharp way the words come out aziraphale flinches yes i know i should have said something earlier oh i'm so terribly sorry antony he says, voice catching on the name. Crowley feels it like a boot to the spine and has a brief, ruthless conversation with his inner angst. Now's not the time to wallow in the surprisingly painful irony of this possible literal angel apologizing for something he can't help and that he has no reason to feel guilty over when Crowley is, in fact, realizing how deeply demonic a creature he is and how distasteful he finds it now is the time to reassure the man he has developed all kind of irrevocable and deeply embarrassing feelings for he sucks in a deep breath no aziraphale oh, wait he protests hauling himself out of his bowl and slithering his way around the hero's torso in a serpenty approximation of a hug. He presses the top of his head firmly against the underside of Aziraphale's chin. I didn't mean to make you feel bad. I was just expecting something... I don't know, something you should actually feel guilty about. Not wanting sex or not finding people fit isn't a bad thing. And damn anyone who's told you otherwise. He concludes fiercely. 
As Mirafil lets out a humorless huff of laughter. Whether it's a bad thing is neither here nor there, my dear. It doesn't change the fact that it makes me incompatible with the majority of people. And not a good candidate for a happy marriage. Is this why you and Katarina didn't work out? Broly guesses, squeezing lightly. Yes. She confided to me her appetites, and when I didn't share them, she suggested we could negotiate some sort of arrangement so that we'd both be satisfied. But I'm far too selfish to trust I could be happy sharing my partner with another. I suppose I've never tried, but it's an awfully big gamble to take when entering into a marriage. And well, I like her well enough, but I couldn't say I love her. Not romantically, at least. Crowley hums consideringly. Hmm, well, just because you and Katerina didn't work out doesn't mean you couldn't make it work with someone else. Aziraphale's not. <laughs> My brothers are quite impatient with me to find someone and make do, regardless of compatibility. Crowley nudges upward in protest. I don't mean like that. I mean, there are other people in the world who aren't interested in sex, or who are but are happy taking care of themselves if their partner isn't. Aziraphale scoffs. Oh, who would ever? I'm not. Crowley blurts out, cutting him off. Interested in sex. He clarifies quickly. I also don't find people, uh, shaggable. His heart is racing in terror. This isn't something he shares. It isn't something he's ever needed to share. But maybe it's a bit of truth he can pay in preemptive penance. Oh. Aziraphale breathes. Truly? He asks, voice trembling. Crowley twines around him tighter, nudging his snout up behind Aziraphale's ear with a nervous sigh. Yeah. Imagine the odds, you of all people answering my flyer. <sighs> Aziraphale repeats, and then again, brokenly. Oh, my, yes, it's quite lucky, isn't it? And while his voice is still all wobbly and heartbreaking, there's a bit of incredulous relief in it. He raises his arms and lays careful hands on Crowley's coils, where they wrap around his chest. I suppose that means I'm still in the candidate pool. You are the candidate pool. Crowley returns grumpily. Your siblings are nightmares. It's cruel of you to even make me consider them. Aziraphale giggles drawing gentle fingers over Crowley's scales. Raphael really is such a dear, and Haniel is quite sweet. Fuck off. I'm exhausted. I'm going to sleep. He declares, and doesn't make a move to release Aziraphale from his constrictor grip. Eventually, he relents long enough to let Aziraphale leave to prepare for bed. But as soon as he returns... Crowley bullies him into the bed and takes up place of pride on his chest, burying his head in the center of his coils. Aziraphale runs a gentle finger down the back of his neck, but doesn't attempt to draw him into further conversation. 
Broly spends the night mentally composing drafts of confessions and imagining their fallout. By morning, he is gritty-eyed and grouchy, and no closer to deciding how he's going to fix any of it. Aziraphale is practically radiating joy, and it twists Crowley's guts.